And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, you are now tuned into anything potable. The most honorable. The most audible. Hold the applause. <laughs> like Paul Pierce when he was fresh out the hospital. Like Antoine when he sent me the Welcome to... Boston Celtics podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sam Jam Packard, professional sports fan, and I am still absent the kid, the god, the legend, who's just tweeting on and on about his brilliant Greek vacation, uh, just really rubbing it in that he's been in Greece for the past month. So instead, I am joined by the other athletic beat reporter for the Boston Celtics. He also covers the NBA. You hear him on the Daily Ding and other athletic podcasts, Jared Weiss. Jared we have actual basketball to talk about, not just wild speculation. The Celtics have played two preseason games, and I think as members of the uh, NBA media, you uh, much more than me, uh, <laughs> I, me as a fan, I think it's like in my right right now to just wildly overreact to two preseason games. One against, uh, and I'm sorry to my friend Nick Friedman to say this, uh, a fake basketball team. An absolute trash organization right now, with all due respect to Nick. That was embarrassing. Uh, and then they had another game against a, uh, a pretty reputable uh, Toronto Raptors team. Uh, I think uh, I was able to go to the game on Sunday, uh, and you, I, you were at the game on Wednesday against the Raptors. I think the thing, my biggest takeaway from uh, just watching the team in person is this Malcolm Brogdon guy is pretty good at basketball, huh? Like that guy can, he <laughs> he's can really, really dribble, good, man. <laughs> dribble, pass. Like uh, he's just a playmaker to have like that level of playmaking coming off the bench. And it's just like, he looks to be a pat, like pass first. I know again, wild overreactions and uh, it's like very, very small sample size, but him being on the court, looking to, looking to pass, looking to get other guys uh, in good position to score the basketball. It's just looked like, Wow, I don't know. Is he just going to dominate this year with like the Celtics' second unit? It's just like having him come off the bench feels like such a luxury that I've already talked to myself into like, oh, he's the sixth man of the year, obviously. I mean, I so I have to do this athletic NBA survey and I have to pick all the awards. I think I'm putting him down, honestly, because uh, I mean, Hero's not going to win again. Like, screw the back to back thing. Jordan Poole's too busy getting punched in the face by Draymond Green to be able <laughs> yeah. to win it. So I feel like Malcolm, Bro- Malcolm Brogdon's third in the odds after those three guys. And I mean, it, like, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself on this, but Malcolm Brogdon may be the greatest point guard to come off the bench of all time. Is that is that too strong right <laughs> don't, now? But no, don't want to get ahead of myself. Don't want to overreact. <laughs> He's, but yes, he, he looks. I, I he lo- agree a thousand percent. <laughs> he look he looks really good. He he looks more in sync than I expected. I think that's a big thing. It's just that you know the the thing that a point guard generally has to learn when they get to a new team is where is my spacing? What what are guys' tendencies? Like how do I hit the, how do I hit a guy in his his shooting pocket like down by his hip or does he like it up by his chest stuff like that? And it looks like he already knows all of it. 
it looks like he figured it out very, very quickly. And so he is just, he's getting wherever he wants. And what I like about Brogdon is he's not someone who needs to like get really deep into the paint to make, make the play. Like he's getting right over that screen and he's immediately throwing that pass. He throws the pass pretty early and he throws it crisp enough that like the pass gets there as if it's a later pass. And so he's just opening up so much room. And I really like they had this one play. I think it was at the end of the first or second quarter. I can't remember when smart kicked it. He kind of like let the clock run down. Then he kicked it to Brogdon in the corner. Brogdon immediately drove to the middle of the paint and just kicked it to Sam Hauser so early. I didn't even see Hauser standing there and neither did the Raptors. And he had a wide open three at the buzzer. And it's like Brogdon just, you know, we, we talked so much last year about how Derek White replacing Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder, how he just, he moves so quickly. And we, and we saw it in these last couple of games, like Derek White, as soon as the ball hits his hands, he's on the move. Brogdon's kind of doing the same thing. And this offense looks like it's speeding up. And so I don't think they're going to win every single game by 40, you know, maybe a little bit less than that. But the one thing that I think is going to allow them to hit the ground running this year is that it looks like their offense is moving even faster than it was last year. And so teams will have to it'll, it'll take defenses some time to adjust and like figure out how to play at the Celtic speed. And the thing about Brogdon, it's not just that he's moving quickly and he's like, he is looking to pass first, but he just. If the if the lane is there where he needs to drive at the guy, he had a pretty nice drive, I think, on OG where he just like simple crossover got into his chest and like hit a layup. He's scoring when the opportunity is there. It's not like he's completely like looking to away from the basket and he's knocking down. He's taking the open threes when he's there. I think he's just like that much more of a potent scorer than Derek White is. Um, and the fact that he's coming off the bench, uh, it feels like they have such. I mean, if Jalen Brown's just going to be on fire for every first quarter, uh, as 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 he does, and then there's this still this kind of Jason Tatum fellow to kind of you almost don't even need Malcolm Brogdon in the in the first team offense, and then it just feels like the Celtics in the past where they've had a lot of struggles on the offensive end when Jason Tatum was on the bench. If you can have someone who is this facilitator and not um, not have a letdown in, in scoring when you go to that bench, which I think has been a kind of a flaw of the Celtics in the past couple of years, it just feels like a huge um, boon to their offense. And um, again, wild overreactions, but they've had some really great second quarters uh, where, and some of this has to do with just their, they have more depth, but they have Grant Williams coming off the bench. Hauser, who apparently uh, has never missed a three point shot, Malcolm Brogdon, um, like their, their bench is just, uh, it's hard to com- for other teams to compete with that when they when the other teams also go to their bench. It seems like the Celtics have, uh, still have like a lot of competent basketball players left out there. And I think what what's cool about Brogdon is you look at the other six men in the league. Most of them are score first guys. Like Jordan Poole can make some plays, but he's more of an electric score. Tyler Hero, I think, eventually will probably turn into a really good point guard, but he still is just like a decent pick and roll playmaker. Is mostly looking for a shot. It's not often that you have. It's not often you have someone that's like a Trey Jones type where he's looking to pass first, but can also score at all three levels the way Brogdon does. So he's just such a super sub. Uh, But I think what's cool about this that we're seeing so far is that they could put him out there with lineups where nobody else is that high level of a creator. Like you could probably get the Jays out of the game at the same time and put Brogdon out there with smart and a bunch of shooters and make that work. Uh, I think what will be interesting is we haven't seen Brogdon work, work with like a one of the good pick and roll guys that much yet. And so I'm really wondering, like, how good of a score can he be if he has a role man who's blowing up the paint? Obviously, like Horford's decent at it. Um, Rob is really good at it. Grant isn't really there yet. I mean, we can get to Grant later. Some stuff he's doing really well, though. But like but I, I just 
seeing how good Brogdon's looking already, I, I, I there's a lot of potential for them to kind of reshape the offense around him. Yeah, and it feels like it's just like uh, he was a missing piece for them and makes their offense that much better. And I think the big question is like how much will their defense kind of slip, especially earlier in the season without Robert Williams? I think it's they seem to be still kind of working um, pretty well and doing a lot of switching uh, on the defensive end. Again, the Charlotte game is very, very hard to evaluate anything with that regard just because (laughs) – they didn't, uh, dude. What, what as much happened? of an I offensive guru? I was literally watching it on my is. phone. Yeah, I was watching it on my phone at a wedding. So, like, you were there. What, what the hell happened there? They have the best assistant coach in the NBA, right? So, it's like, why is this happening? It just like felt like the first preseason game. Like, it was just pretty sloppy. But then also, there's like, they're not a lot of talent on the uh, the old Charlotte oh, Hornets roster God, there. As soon as God, you get no. beyond uh, Kelly Oubre, which uh, is a statement in itself. Um, but it, it like felt like the Celtics were playing solid defense and are pretty connected. And it's something you would expect from a, a core that, you know, went on a deep finals run together. And it doesn't feel like adding like Malcolm Brogdon also looks like he knows generally knows what he's doing on the defensive end. There's not a lot of guys you have to kind of integrate there. Um, but it's like it, it didn't look like the defense was necessarily in shambles without uh, having Robert Williams. And so. Uh, again, very, very small sample size, but it's like a, it's good to see that the Celtics still felt like pretty connected uh, on the defensive end. And I thought did a, a pretty decent job on uh, Toronto, who has a number of uh, more weapons, weapons who are kind of willing to take you off the bounce and try to like take you one on one. And I thought the Celtics did a pretty decent job of them, especially there in the second quarter. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think you can really take any. Over- I'm I'm choosing not to overreact. I'm going to live in my overreactions and not react to anything that happened in the second half. And I'll be honest, uh, watching last night on the television, I immediately just turned the turned the game off as soon as it went to overtime. I just I was Good. not going to entertain any Good. sort of preseason overtime shenanigans. Tell me about the media section. Uh, how furious was everyone? When, <laughs> we were living. Went on to <laughs> we were all like heads in our hands. We're like cheering against the Celtics. We're just like, come on, Raptors, just fucking score. Um, I mean, I I I called for Nick Nurse to be fined for going for two. <laughs> Uh, in, uh, in a preseason game down too, I thought that was an egregious act against basketball kind. And uh, the best part of it was this place was packed and loud. The arena was going off. Soon as this overtime happened, everybody got the hell out of there. It literally, literally half of the crowd, which was at pretty much at capacity, was gone by the time they even tipped off overtime. Well, everyone, there's smart basketball fans here in Boston. They know that preseason overtime is bad and that uh, no one should support it. But I guess what did you think of like the defensive effort from the team? Uh, I, I was going to ask, like, what do you think Rob's – like not having Rob's impact is going to be? That feels like a dumb question. Their defense is going to be a little bit worse. But like how uh, how much do you think they're going to miss him moving forward? Or do you think they have enough of like a, a core of just solid defenders that it might not be as big a diff, uh, deal? Yeah, they're okay. I mean, I, I think they'll probably be uh, around tenth best defense, maybe a little bit better than that without him. Uh, they, I mean, so far their their ball pressure has been pretty good, and that's like the big thing that really it all really comes down to because they got Al, and Al is still a pretty good rim protector. He's not great, but he's pretty good. Cornette, if they can, you know, if if they're really doing a good job of like funneling the defense right into Cornette, he should be pretty decent when he gets back. And Grant Williams, his rim protection isn't quite like where it needs to be for him to be one of the main centers, but he's rebounding really well. And so 
I, I think the one thing that I liked was that it seems like they're rebounding better, especially compared to that first game where they, it was a really bad rebounding night for them, especially when they went small. And so, you know, that, that second game, uh, it, it seemed like Missoula was trying to test out some of their bigger lineups because the first game was a lot of small lineups. He brought he broke out that Jason Tatum at the five microball lineup, which went very poorly. We didn't see that in the second game. But I, I feel like these first two games, it's like him kind of trying to figure out, like, what are the extremes of the ways that we can operate? But I think at the end of the day, the main thing is going to be they're probably going to switch more one through five. Usually it's like one through four. And then Rob is kind of you know zoning around trying to figure it out. I think they'll probably just switch everybody. And bringing in Blake Griffin tells me they're going to do that even more because Blake Griffin's main value as a defender is that he can switch. So that that's, I think, the main thing we'll see that'll be different you know, to compensate for Rob. And then I wonder if that's working really well. Will they stop dropping even more than they did with Rob out there? Or they'll might get Rob... Um, you know, less uh, having less of Rob hiding on the weak side and have him actually in the middle of the play more often so that he can use his length and athleticism to start blowing things up. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting. Let's talk about Blake Griffin. I think like the last memory I have of him is the uh, him getting very much exposed in the playoffs when the Nets would switch everything and the Jalen Brown could basically just attack him relentlessly. I don't know if Blake Griffin is a, a playoff performer at this point, just given that kind of defensive liability. But from what I've seen from Noah Vonley in the preseason or um, even Cobb and Gale, uh, I don't I mean, they're, they're clearly different players in different roles, but like what is, what is a really realistic expectation for like what Blake Griffin's going to give to this Boston Celtics team? Is he just like a kind of a veteran guy who uh, break glass in case necessary? Uh, or is he like you know legitimately a, a, a someone who's going to get you know a regular amount of minutes on this team, uh, or at least in Rob's absence? Because I just don't know what Blake Griffin has left in the tank other than like a tight five on uh, being an NBA player uh, that he like really honed at the Just for Last Festival. <laughs> I mean, he's bringing the vibes. That that's the main role for an end of bench guy. And I, I think we were we talking about this or I was talking about this on the show recently about how the Celtics haven't quite brought in a Udonis Haslam figure over the last few years. They haven't had that vet fun, you know, that like that vet dude whose main job is clearly to be the culture setter at the end of the very very end of the, of the, of the bench. They've had Al Horford in that role, but Horford is like a primary guy. It's like you also need a guy that doesn't do anything. So like his job is just to make sure that the vibes are immaculate or that he's yelling at everybody to do their job. So I, I think that will probably end up being Blake's role later. But right now he's obviously the backup center like he's obviously better than Luke Cornett as much as Cornett when he gets healthy he can probably do differently than what Blake is doing like Blake I, th I think that because the last time Celtics fans were watching Blake he was getting torched by Jalen Brown that they think he sucks but he was guarding Jalen Brown as a center it's like <laughs> the whole point is that he's capable of doing that and and also he wasn't terrible against Jalen in those moments. Like he actually had a few plays where he defended him pretty well. Just Jalen was absolutely on fire. So I think Blake is still a credible switching defender at the five. You can take on a lot of different assignments and he'll be okay. You're probably only going to play him like 20 minutes at the most right now. I think I, I, pres I presume that Grant is going to get a lot of minutes so far. The substitution patterns haven't set it up to make it look that way. But I think that's more Missoula experimenting. Like we saw Noah Vonley, he came in again during the first quarter against Toronto and that he didn't play again, I don't think. So 
I wouldn't I wouldn't take too much uh, out out of the minutes that Grant's getting at this point. I think he's going to clearly be a pretty featured player. But Blake Blake is definitely going to play a role for this team for sure. And then even after Rob comes back, I still could see him getting minutes like every other night. I think he's still that good. The problem is whether he can shoot the ball. Like last year, he didn't really roll that much. Like they need him to be a roller. He wasn't really rolling that much. He was kind of just like hanging out at the three point line. And he was bricking like most of his shots. So if unless he shoots, you know, unless he like shoots like 30, uh, 38% or something like that, I don't think they're going to be looking at him as a floor spacing option that can play in the middle of the floor compared to Grant, who Grant doesn't play in the middle of the floor as much historically, but I think is starting to move his way over there. So I don't really think Blake is doing anything better at this point than what Grant is doing. And so he probably won't be ahead of him in most situations, but he'll probably be someone that they'll bring in there from time to time once they're at full strength. Yeah, I mean, the Blake Griffin of two years ago was 38% from three. Blake Griffin of last year was 26% from three. And I mean, like, that has a huge impact on kind of whether or not they can like, trot him out there and rely on it. He did lead the league in, I think, charges taken last year. So you're right. He's not as uh, terrible in defense. Uh, but, I mean, that's not the, the most indicative stats. But it is shows you some old, good old-fashioned Kelly Olynyk positional defense that uh, I think is valuable. I think that stat's kind of a bullshit stat because, like, if you're a big, you're taking charges because you can't go up in the air and defend the shot. So, you know, usually that stat is like like Kemba Walker, I think, did it once, like Smart Sunday, because you're guards. It's like you're supposed to do it that way. So if a big is doing it, that tells me he's not willing to go up in the air. Um, but, like, also – it's 26 of those. It's like if you're if you're a center in the NBA, you're supposed to contest like 10 shots at the rim every single night, basically. So 26 yeah, charges. With is, a little, isn't, okay, yeah, because everyone's expecting you to go up and jump. No one's expecting you to just plant your feet and take, <laughs> uh, take that charge. It's a bit of a mind game from a veteran Blake who's definitely bringing the vibes. I don't know what he did last night in Toronto, but he said something to Cobb and Gelly that really – made Jason Tatum laugh and made Tom Kelly just be the most confused person I've seen in a long time. Uh, but I'm all for that. That's that's kind of hijinks I want to look down on the bench and see. I mean, what I really loved about that was that when he when the beginning of that clip, when Fee's walking away, you're thinking like, oh, everyone's having fun. It's a good time. Then they cut to Fee and Fee like has his hands over his head. He's like, what the fuck just happened? He looks so he looks so <laughs> perplexed. I love that. Uh, I think we I'm shocked we've gone this far. Uh without talking about Sam Hauser, uh, the guy makes a lot of three-point shots, which I don't know if you knew this, is a is an important skill in today's NBA. Um, I don't think he's really been tested defensively, but I don't think he looks bad defensively. But him just being able to space the floor, come off the bench and give them a, a shooting threat where you have to stay with him the entire time if you are a defense, just because it feels like if he's open, he's going to knock down that three, I think is another kind of... Uh, just a thing that makes the Celtics bench very interesting from an offensive standpoint. Um, I guess what's what's been your impression of Hauser so far, other than like anointing him, you know, the next Larry Bird? He's at least the next uh, Aaron Neesmith, which is what I everyone mean, yeah, needs. He's already done more than Aaron Neesmith uh, <laughs> did in his, his Celtics career, but yeah. Well, I, I just I just want to read you something. Um, Aaron Neesmith. 13 minutes, 51 seconds, 16 points, a game high for the Indiana Pacers in a 122 to 97 win over guess who they beat last night? Uh, the Dallas it, it was Mavericks. A, no, it was a blowout win that should help you very easily. The Knicks? The Charlotte Hornets. Who else? Oh, I should have been. So, <laughs> so the, the point is, is that 
playing the Charlotte Hornets turns you into an elite young shooting guard in this league, as Aaron Neesmith is about to ascend to, and which where Sam Hauser clearly already is, may not be a better shooter than Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum did have a very thorough logical explanation for why, but the what I do think is real about what Sam is doing, uh, you as well, I'll give you credit for it too, is the shots he was hitting early in the game were coming under like really heavy contests from the Raptors defenders. The Raptors are like the most aggressive contesting team in the league. They, they try to run you off the line as hard as possible. They jump into the second row just to try to get you off the line. And instead of, instead of just taking that and then trying to kick it out the way like Grant Williams might do, uh, or actually the Grant Williams has gotten better at this too, but Hauser was shooting right over those contests. And what I liked was, he he called bullshit on it in the press conference afterwards. So screw you, Hauser, for not giving me the quote I wanted. But I I disagree with him on this. Uh, I think his mechanics are a little bit different, and it might not be a purposeful mechanical change, but it does look different. And it was that last year he kept front rimming a lot of his contested threes because he would lean back a little bit, and then when you lean back, you're basically you know you're you're taking away from your power and you're making it more of a slingshot, so you're throwing it at the rim a little bit more. And so it seemed like he was leaning back a little bit more, and that's probably because he didn't feel comfortable and he was scared he was going to get a shot blocked. And so in these first couple games, his shoulders are forward, he looks more unbalanced, and he's just shooting absolute lights out because it's all about confidence. We saw that with Neesmith. We're seeing it with Hauser. It's like these guys, they've been working on their shot long enough. Their shot's already fine. It's really just about comfort and confidence. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. And it certainly has a lot of confidence. That the, it feels like the people in the garden have a lot of confidence in him. They like they expect the ball. Like you expect the Sam Hauser to make that three uh, when he takes it, especially when it's open. I also think he's done a good job of cutting without the ball. Like uh, he he had some a couple at least one layup in the in the Hornets game where he just kind of has timed it well. Um, speaking of like just 
improvements on the offensive end. Grant Williams has just showed some like dribble, dribble move, dribble hesitation and transition yesterday, uh, which was pretty impressive. But he's just shown a lot more aggression when he catches the ball, uh, both in the half court and in, in transition. And it's just like, oh yeah. Players get better when they, uh, you know, are constantly working <laughs> on their games in the off season. But it's definitely like, oh, Grant, Grant has added some things to uh, his repertoire here, and uh, I just think it's another reason to, you know, overreact and be excited. I wonder how much, mil- how many more millions he made on his extension talks with that one little hezzy crossover. Because that him him breaking out a few of those moves and like the moves are cool, but what what I think is a big development is he's no longer doing that kind of big man gallop stride dribble where he's shielding the ball because he's not comfortable handling it. He's squaring up. He's actually like kicking his legs behind him and running with the ball, and so he's moving and he's getting to shots he can potentially hit. We did see him try to take one of his righty floaters last night, and it I think it almost hit the side of the backboard. It didn't look pretty, but he he still has to figure out how can he score on the inside. But he's actually putting the ball on the floor, keeping his his chest out towards the hoop, and that's allowing him to make better passes and to get deeper where he's really drawing the defense in. So if Grant Williams could still be a good shooter on the wings, um, hopefully get out of the corner so he can space towards the top and like kind of get like a you know it, the the Celtics don't want it so that the defense knows he's always going to be down in the corners pretty much like they want it to be more confusing to figure out where he is because then whoever his man is gets a little bit more confused and it makes things even harder for the defense but if he can just be able to dribble out of those wings when he gets the ball and make more complex plays or even get a shot like that makes a huge difference for the offense. Yeah, and, and again, it's just reason to be excited about what this Celtics second unit can do. I don't like think there's many questions about the first unit. I mean, we saw Marcus Smart do some ri- ridiculous Marcus Smart-like uh, things. Just awful, awful turnovers that really at this point uh, endear me more to Marcus, where it's like, I love that you just <laughs> tried this right now. Like, yeah, there was no reason to go behind the back there or uh, – you know, trying to throw a, an alley-oop off the backboard to to Jalen Brown when he could have just taken a layup. Wild move. But I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like there's no questions right now about the, the kind of the starting lineup other than, like, you you hope that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart continue to get a little bit better themselves. But uh, I think a lot of the questions were about coming off the bench. I, in your watching one game on your phone at a wedding and then watching another <laughs> game in person – do uh, you have any takeaways about, I guess, the Jays or Marcus or Al Horford or, or Derek White? It, it just feels like they've played pretty consistently with what you you they did in, the, in previous seasons. I mean, White's shot looks a little bit better, right? And he's taking it yeah. a lot. He's taking it with more preseason. confidence, which is which is a good way to start the season. It would be bad if he was like Derek, uh, finals version of Derek White. That's certainly good. Yeah, if it's a conference finals version where he's a 79% shooter, that would be pretty good. But... I mean, so far, the Jays look good. Uh, Tatum can't shoot, which is normal for Tatum. Um, you know, we know how it goes with Tatum. He's going to shoot 29% from three until January 10th, and he's going to shoot 49% for the rest of the year and be, you know, finish fourth in the MVP race. So uh, I- I'm not really concerned about anything I'm seeing so far. I asked JT after the game uh, against the Raptors about he had this one move where I'm noticing he's facing up more in the high post, although I guess for him, the high post is really the three point line, but he's facing up more. I guess what the difference is, is it's out in the corners. 
And so he'll pivot face up against a guy instead of trying to back him down or dribble towards the middle of the floor. And he's hitting him with some like really quick jab steps and other kind of post moves. And they're just so much faster. And he's blowing guys away. Like it was one thing when he blew away Mason Plumley in that first game. It's like it's Mason Plumley. I forget who the defender was, but it was it was one of the Raptors like quicker defenders in, uh, in in that last game. And he said that his whole offseason priority was quicker moves, like quicker decisions, quicker moves. The dude looks really fast. And if he if he's able to figure out new ways to get into the paint where he's not putting up that floater anymore like that, that's huge for just making it more efficient and him getting to the line more because he he should be top 10 in the league in free throw attempts per game. I don't think that's unreasonable. I can't even remember where he was last year. He was he was in a decent spot, but not at that level yet. So I think he'll be fine. Jalen is looking pretty good on both sides of the ball. I mean, he's obviously been pretty lights out so far. His uh, his his ball handling has gotten a little bit uh, cleaner, and his passes have gotten better. I wrote about the other day. He's doing this drill at practice where he has to. You know, bend forward and cross over two balls in each hand. So he's like dribbling two balls together at the same time. And then they'll be, he'll have a defender right in front of him, who's usually Tony Dobbins, his main his main player development guy. And then another coach like Craig Lucianet or one of those other coaches, and they basically pop up in random spots down the court, and he has to pass it to them on commands from like awkward angles. And it's training him to be able to, one, more comfortably throw passes with his left hand, which is something he's been working on for a long time, and just be more, I think, like have more control over his dribble when it's down low because we've seen so many times Jalen try to pull off some like kind of fancy move and he fumbles it away or he's keeping it low and it's too obvious where the ball is and someone can poke it away. So that seems to be working because we've seen him get a few dimes now out of that kind of position and I'm seeing how the the drill is actually translating to the game itself. Yeah, and that that's like clearly the next step in, in Jalen Brown's evolution and I think the thing the thing, the thing is a statement. Um, I think the thing that I've been most impressed with Jalen Brown just across his entire career is um, his really – it feels like the embodiment of the Kaizen approach of just like incremental progress where he has gotten a little bit better every single year. And it feels like that's true from season to season uh, and from just like throughout uh, years – I guess maybe exception last year where it just felt like his, his dribbling and turnovers was like a huge issue, but like he does add a little bit something to his game every single year. I would say Jason Tatum does this as well. Just like Jason Tatum just started off with like a, as a much more polished player, but it feels like JB uh, just whether it's uh, shooting or getting to the paint more, or just like a, a kind of that, that mid range pull up that he kind of adds new things to his game. And it definitely felt like, Playmaking dribbling has been the, is kind of that the next part of that, and he's uh, and that drill sounds like uh, that'd be fascinating to watch. But it definitely it's it feels like uh, again wild overreaction. It's it's something that he's uh, clearly been working on in the offseason. So he, I asked him for a story on Cobb and Gailey last night about some of the drills that they were working on, and he mentioned that he's trying to be a primary ball handler. What do you what do you think of the idea of him? One thinking that he could be a primary ball handler, and then do you think he could pull that off? And I mean, he's all he's in his age twenty seven season, right? So it's like he's entered his prime now. So is that still realistic for him? I like the gumption. Uh, I like the uh, the growth mindset. I like the belief that he can be a primary ball handler. I would be skeptical. I think he is not in the top five players on the Celtics roster who I would want to be a primary ball handler for this team. 
but I do think those are the skill sets that would make him his game take it to the next level. And so if like that's the approach you need to have to kind of like work on playmaking, dribbling, passing, setting other guys up, I think that will uh, only benefit him. But like, I don't think there's going to be a lot of lineups where it's like, okay, it's Jalen in the bench right now. Like we're just running high pick and rolls for Jalen. Just like go make a play like that. That's, if that's what the Celtics second unit or like that's what the Celtics offense is, I don't, I think things have gone wrong. Yeah. And I'm sorry, he's age, he's turning 26 at the end of this month on the 24th. So happy early birthday for him. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's a big thing, right? As you look at the other like great wing duos in the league, like Giannis and Middleton, um, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, like the, the, the important thing there is that both of those guys can run the offense themselves. They're both great pick and roll playmakers on each side. And I mean, the Celtics have such good depth and they have such a great defensive system around those two stars that it makes up for the fact that Tatum right now is the only player you really trust to be the offensive hub. And Jalen isn't quite there yet. Jalen's Jalen's there as a score. Like he's a he's definitely a superstar level score. It's just to be a superstar. You also have to be a, a great, a great or a really good playmaker who doesn't turn it over more than you get like your assist to turnover ratio has to be better than even and he's been pretty close to that so tatum's not dramatically better but you can you can see the difference between the way jalen or jason runs pick and roll and the way jalen does it like there's clearly another step for jalen to take but jalen's a better finisher and i think jalen's mid-range game is also better right now too um so like both of those guys are at a pretty comparable spot as to where their impact is it's just that jt's advantage as a playmaker i think kind of outweighs it yeah, it feels like uh, Tatum just has a little bit more uh, vision uh, in terms of just knowing where everyone is on the court and decision-making. You talk about Tatum just, like, getting into his moves quicker. I think it's just, like, he sees the game a little bit quicker and just, like, knows when to when to make that right pass, like, coming off that screen or, or when, mm-hmm. a, when a second guy's coming to him, whereas it's not as fluid with uh, Jalen Brown. But, I like... Good position to be in if you're the Celtics to have both of them on the court at the same time and you sprinkle they're pretty in a little. Good. They're going to be a, a pretty solid squadron, I would have to say. Um, I, we're we're going to wrap up soon, but we have to talk about Cobb Gale. I mean, the guy's sure. the guy's electric. He jumps he jumps on the floor for a loose ball, stands up, daps up the ref, uh, is totally in the zone, doesn't realize he dapped up the ref. Um, he's shooting threes because he wants to. Uh, why not when he's open, not scared? I have no idea if he's going to make the roster. Clearly, Noah Vonley is getting the, uh, more of an opportunity just in terms of playing with the regular uh, starters or more of the rotation players right now. But, man, Cobbingelli's electric. I'm rooting for him, and I know you have a, a story on him coming up. So what has been, what has your been impression of the, uh, the Cobbingelli experience? Yeah, he's fascinating. I mean, he better make the roster because that dude is a great interview. I really want to talk to him more this year. But uh, the piece I think should be out Friday on the Athletic, and we we got into his him learning how to be a pick and roll player and just all the intricacies that it takes just to literally just a set a screen and roll. Like it's way more complicated than people probably think because it looks simple. But he's been learning that process of like how truly complicated it is. And we did see some improvement where, like, in the first game, he kept setting screens and then rolling, and his point guard would literally run into him because he doesn't know how the timing works. And we saw some progress on that against Toronto. My, my my big thing with him, there's two big things. It's like, one, can he learn how to roll into a split place where he's not taking up space and clogging things up because that is happening a lot? And then on defense, can he get his positioning right so that he's not jumping out of the play? 
And that's happening a lot, whether he's doing Rob Williams role where he's helping or he's you know sitting on the weak side. He's kind of playing that zone. And the D, it looked like Charlotte, their whole thing was we're going to try to bring his guy up from the corner, which is what teams at the Rob Williams last year. And that was really confusing him. So he's figuring that out. And then when he's in pick and roll right now, he's dropping so far back that he's just letting the ball handler get wherever he wants. And like LaMelo kept taking advantage of him where he would like LaMelo. Everyone knows LaMelo. He gets to about the 12 foot mark and then he crosses to the middle of the paint. and He takes like a sideways floater and he hits it every time. And Fee just kept giving him that shot over and over again. So I think Fee's trying to learn the technique with them. He needs to know the personnel a little bit better. Uh, I, you know, I, I think the big thing that I took away from that story is that he kind of understood that he wasn't working hard enough and he wasn't playing smart enough. And he was really honest about it. There's some really interesting quotes in there about it. Uh, but he talked about how we kind of realized he was basically being a dumbass and that realizing his talent is just not going to get him anywhere in the NBA if he's not playing smart and he's not working smart. So I, I think that he's one of those guys that like they need to invest some time into him. And obviously he's on a two way. So it's not he's not going to get cut. I presume like he's already on a two way. It's I don't think he's going to get promoted either um, because uh, Noah Vonley might make this roster. And I'm curious what you think of that, because I, I haven't liked what I've seen so far out of him. I thought he sucked in that first game, but apparently the I talked to people off the record uh, with the team, and they're like, actually, we like him. Even off the record, we liked what he did. And then uh, the game against Toronto, he only played like a very short stint, but he actually made some nice plays in that one. He definitely looked better in Toronto than, or against Toronto than he did in that first game. I'm surprised to see here that people uh, liked his performance. I just didn't think he was great. Like, at this point, we're talking about the 15th man on the roster. If it goes to Noah Vonley, then uh, cheers to him. It's not like there's other guys who are like, man, would be a shame to see Broderick Thomas not made. Like, there's no, there's no one out there. It's just like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I don't think Justin absolutely- Jackson's going to make it at this rate either. It doesn't look like he just can. They, I know that they came into camp thinking, like, we need to see him show he could be physical and be a scorer, and that's not happening right now. So I feel like Jackson's probably out at this point. Yeah, he didn't make the one open three that I saw him take. So, I mean, how is he going to sustain himself <laughs> on this roster? That's what he's usually uh, good at. Yeah, that's that's what he came in to do. So, uh, we will see. We got two more games left in the preseason before real legitimate basketball. Um, you know, who knows if Jay King will ever return. Uh, it's, it's, it's very – it's questionable at this point because he seems to just love Greece, which I would not guess, but – Every time he sends a, tweets a picture from like a Santorini sunset, I'm just like, all right, maybe the kid's European now. Um, but Jared, the question I have for you is what should I think about my Brighton Gulls going up against Tottenham Hotspur this weekend? Uh, I think that uh, Harry Kane's probably going to score two goals, but Brighton's going to have a late goal in the 90th minute on a set piece to tie it up and get the draw. I think that's fair. I would say that is potable, and I would uh, conclude with the summation that um, anything's potable. On the Athletic NBA show. That's not, that's probably not accurate, is it? (laughs) As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10 
$10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.